film is a sort of dreamscape. You get this kind of groundless passion. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. Welcome to the second edition of the Town Hall with the wonderful Swindle, who's with me with his shades on. Um, can we give a round of applause? Hello, everyone. Nice to see you all. I am Nicholas Terrell Scott, the host for this evening. Um, the Town Hall is looking to centre polymaths in music who um, frequent music in different ways, in intricate ways. And as we'll learn this evening with Swindle, He's done it for over a decade and continues to traverse the realms of grime, jazz, hip-hop at large, soul, anything you name it, he can contort it into something special. So without further ado, Swindle, um, I want you to first of all introduce yourself to the masses. You've done so much in your time in this industry. How would you like to be categorized in 2023? Uh -huh. That's a good question. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm a music producer first, yep. you know, that's, that's definitely it. That's my main thing. I'm, music, I'm a music producer and I just generally look for new ways to present and contribute music in a way that I feel is interesting. I wanted to actually introduce you via a YouTube clip. Um, okay. We spoke about it when we did your biography a few years back, but um, I think it just um, kind of exemplifies how excited you continue to be about music. Um, this was from over a decade ago, so yeah. Brilliant. I didn't tell you about it, but. Um, yeah, it's a joke. seconds left on the clock. What, quick structure? Yeah, quick structure, let's go. Quick, quick structure, structure, structure. I should try and make all my tunes in 10 minutes, man. It's a vibe, you know that? <laughs> How long have you got? 30 seconds. So, yeah, over wow. a decade ago, um, this Maybe was. Maybe 2009? Yeah, 2009, 2010. Um, you were on the first episode of Beat This. The episode's actually available on YouTube still. It's 18 minutes in total, and there's a great interview of an early swindle um, still making his way through the industry. Yeah. Talk to me about how music makes you feel and. In your, in your IG clips, I still see that same person, I'm that still, happy person. I'm still that same kid. Yeah. A little bit slower in my physical movement, <laughs> but I'm basically still him. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about how music makes you feel and when you first discovered that feeling of euphoria that kind of music imparts in you. Um, I think I was really, really young. It's something like I've, I've always done, probably from about like... I don't know, like nine or 10, like messing around with keyboards, maybe eight. Like 
we just kind of had musical instruments in our house kind of as toys, same like how I do for my kids now, you know? And um, yeah, when I was about 12, like my dad worked in IT. This is back when not everyone had computers. So we had a computer in our house and we got some software for it and was able to like replicate music like, and learn how to sequence. So I was, I was about 12 when I started learning how to like sequence music and put together MIDI patterns and, and stuff like that. And um, like that became like my video game. That was my football. You know, like people that know me will will tell you like I don't play Fortnite or you know I'm saying I haven't touched a console since the N64. I, I've never been oh to a God, football game. No, but for real, it's like that. I just lived that for so long. It's only now where I'm starting to be like, oh, maybe I'm interested in other things sometimes as well. Like, um, but yeah, it just can kind of consume my whole life and just my most joyful moments was either like DJing or, or producing yeah. and just messing around, yeah. You spoke about your father and I know when we last spoke um, during the pandemic, you mentioned his influence on you and your music. Yeah. Um, beyond just that software that he got you, talk to me about like following him around and kind of being imparted by music from such a young age and how do you think it's helped your craft by being introduced so early? Well, for one, it just like, broaden like my horizon in terms of like what I was listening to like my dad plays guitar so there was also like learning the basics on the guitar which I'm still like trading off the basics that he taught me when I was 10 and um yeah like his record collection was like my sample material as well when I first started to to learn so I would get to know records through like sampling his records so then I really got to know George Benson and, you know, Miles Davis, because, you know, my dad's massively into jazz, you know. Great guitarist, Pat Metheny's, Wes Montgomery's, to sample all these records, Quincy Jones. And then I, I found my own taste within that and, like, found funk. Actually, I think that there was a moment, re- actually, I found Gangster's Paradise off, yep, on my own back. Yeah, I was talk about that. It's on the list. Yeah, and that led me to G-Funk, and I was listening to, you know, anything I could find, which was harder at that time as well. And then I remember my dad coming in the room and, like, he heard Easy E's, like... I remember he walked in just as the lyric was about, like, I don't know, this one sucked my dick or bitches ain't shit. And he was just like, why are you listening to this mess on, like, anyway, that's Zapp and Roger. And I was like, what's Zapp and Roger? And then he played me Zapp and Roger, and I was just like, I prefer Zapp and Roger. And then I just started... Cut collecting my funk, own funk vinyls and um, yeah that definitely like informed so much of like my production style and what I was into yeah. You speak a lot about you've spoken about like three four different genres now like jazz hip-hop yeah. g-funk funk itself genre blending has come to mark not only our time but British musical history throughout the ages um, how do you continue to push the envelope in that sense of mixing genres and kind of evolving canons? Um, it, like, it sounds crazy, but like, I never actually tr- tried that hard to do that. Yeah. It was just like, it was just my interest. And then w- when we started putting, there was never like a pressure of like, music, music, my music having to be understood by anyone. Mm-hmm. So I was just putting down like all my favorite things about music. So those things were just kind, kind of coming through naturally. Like when we started the journey of like, instrumental grime you know I'd, I'd 
I'd already been making like mixtape grime, which in my head it was, I was probably leaning more into, you know, my taste in G-Funk and stuff like that. And then when Elijah, who's in the building, was like, oh, you should make instrumental grime, can you DJ? I was like, yeah, I used to mix drum and bass. I, I kind of took what I, I remembered from like One Nation tape packs and drum and bass and yeah. Dillinger and Bad Company and, you know, Ronnie Size, Goldie, all of that, and then made it at 140 and still kind of had that funk influence because it's all I knew how to play. <laughs> and then that come, come together and it wasn't until people's reaction let me know that it was something different. Does that make sense? You spoke about Elijah's influence. I was actually going to ask about that. Um, obviously at the time, what you were doing was something different. It was uncharted waters and being able to introduce that to rave culture, to be able to introduce that to, you know, mixes, radio, all of that is, you know, a ground that was largely uncovered at the time. It was a community of you guys getting together and building collectives and building those ecosystems to now, you know, we look back off so fondly. Um, how was it forging and building community with the likes of some of the people in this room? And talk to me about some more lessons that they imparted on you along the way. Uh, so, so much, because we were all learning at that time. You know, someone else I was probably mentioned is Terra Danger. Yeah. Was like kind of big brother to, to all of us in a lot of ways and was like, oh, you know, like your kick drum should be louder. And then we'd be like, all right. But then we'll go home and turn our kick drum up, you know. Those early butters parties like opened up my mind to like how other people even rave because before that going out was just like a completely different experience for me. It was yeah. either kind of like liquid nightclub. What a throwback. Yeah. What a throwback. Well I mean we used to lick that every Sunday, you know. You was there. And um and then outside of that, it was like going up like to East and wearing shirts and ties to go and like yeah. party to Funky House and stuff. And then like my first DJ show was in Paradiso, Amsterdam, and like people were raging. And I never seen like a crowd like just just so broad and diverse and like who was there in age groups and do you know what I mean? Guys versus girls, and, and, and it was just like. Yeah, I remember just opening my eyes up and I was like, oh, this is what the One Nation tape packs must have looked like because I'd only ever heard them. I'd never seen a rave. And then, yeah, the next kind of probably 10 years from that saw me kind of traveling the world and realizing that that is happening everywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about peace, love and music and your statement. Looking back on it retrospectively, we spoke about you owing that globalization of music and you owing what you've seen in the likes of Asia, you know, South Africa, England, obviously at large, New York, LA. Talk to me about crafting that and how it was different to what you'd crafted prior and how you found your ear change as you navigated the world as well. And what, what kind of were the biggest influences that you took away from it and your time traveling yeah. and your time you continue to travel? The process of that, that album was like, I learned a lot like about production and but also like about myself yeah. and maybe like started to find some kind of spirituality within myself as well. It was just a strange time because my life was changing like so much and I was just looking for reason in it. So that whole thing started with me. I used to write music every day like I'd, it was I was super strict about it. If I didn't make like five beats a day, I heard five Kanye say five beats for every day for a summer so I yeah. just went and I was just doing that and then I would 
all of a sudden I'm on tour and I, like, I haven't made music for a week and it was feeling weird. So I started saying, oh, you know, while I'm here, can we like book a studio? Like, is there any local musicians? And then I was presented with all these instruments that I was having to learn kind of on the job, you know. I always talk about being in China and being presented with like this Guzeng player who's now killing it on Instagram, funnily enough. Her name's Cece, you should like, check her out, Cece Lin, I think. And I'd never seen a Guzeng. I didn't know what it was like. It's like a lap guitar. Yeah. And I didn't know how to mic it. So, you know, every time we went through that process, I was like, okay, that's how you record a djembe. Like, this is how we record percussion in Brazil. And I'm just like learning and learning and learning. And that was like, all those kind of technical skills is what kind of helped me on this more like live hybrid and like creating with musicians like outside of myself. Before that, I, had, I hadn't really ever like recorded anything that wasn't myself playing, if that makes sense. And then like spiritually, I just kept like asking myself during that time, like why do I get to do this, you know? Like what's it, what's it gonna be worth? There was like one moment when I was in the Philippines and like that was my first time like seeing like real poverty you know like sometimes we feel like we see poverty in the west but you don't you don't really until you go to south africa and you go to the philippines and you see like children begging and then being like i saw kids like being shooed off a boat with a broom and it just like broke my heart and i I looked to like what i had because they wanted money i didn't have any money on me and like i had this like gucci bag that i just bought in new york and i was just like how dumb am I, man? I got this, like... Do you know what I mean? I bought this Gucci bag that I could hardly afford. These kids have got nothing, and I can't even... I can't even give them a coin. Yeah. I was just like, that's the last bag I'll buy. And also, if music is going to, like, afford me this life of luxury is how I saw it, then it must be my duty to pay back in. And that's when, like, the messaging in the music, like, became, like, really clear to me, like... I had to call the album like Long Live the Jazz. I had to call the album Peace, Love and Music. Like I had to, yeah, it had to be a vehicle for pushing something positive. Otherwise I was wasting my time and everyone else's, you know? Mm. That's interesting because obviously you've just entered that kind of commentary on music needing to have a purpose as well. I think I see a lot as a journalist of debates about, you know, music being fickle or versus music with a message, you know? An artist having that debate, and so and and fans now entering the the four on social and and in real life. Do you feel like it's every artist's duty to kind of carry a message forth with their music, or do you feel like it's down to the individual? No, not necessarily. I wouldn't just put that on anyone else, but just for me and my path. Yeah, you know, like I was thinking about it the other day, and and like part of the truth is that I, I kind of like I'm only really working out now is like that was at a time where. Like that same year where I was like starting to travel and things were really taken off, you know, like locally things things were happening, you know. So two friends had died that year and like one of my good friends is like was in prison and like just celebrating just didn't feel appropriate. Do you know what I'm saying? So I always to be like I just asked to ask myself like why do I get to to do this? It sounds weird, but no, it was but almost it like I wish like it did, yeah, it didn't feel appropriate just to be, like, stunty about it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, that, that's, that's also part of it. For me, on my journey, I'm like, well, I can't waste this. Yeah. yeah. That was during the mid-10s. Um, 
in present day, we see, which we'll get into in a bit, but we see a communal role with how you not only produce for other artists, but how you build camaraderie and build kind of um, mentorship um, in both formal and informal. Um, yeah. One of those being Koji, which we'll speak about in a bit. But how do you see your role in music now versus at that pivotal moment during the 2010s where you kind of had that, that experience or series of experiences? Yeah. Yeah, it's changed so much and it still changes for, like, for every artist that I kind of, yeah, work and engage with now. And um, that's been like one of the most satisfying things. It's like I say all the time, like Koji getting like a playlist with a song with a New Orleans brass band, like, you know, being the main part of the beat or whatever, like that's the new reload for me now. Do you know what I'm saying? Whereas before, I would just like make a tune in. That's my mum's basement, you know. That's why I made so much music in my yeah. mum's basement. Yeah, yeah. I used to make tunes in there and I'd be like, right, I'm going to play this tonight. And if it got a reload, I'd be like, bam, I've made it. And now I'm like, this many years in, I'm able to take everything that we soaked up over that time and, and give it to someone else. And it makes their journey quicker. And their journey's quicker anyway because times have changed. Times have changed. So much. So it's almost like, oh, you know you don't kind of have to go through what we went through. And then on top of that, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people that were mentoring me in, in, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, you know. So I think about the way that Mala took me under his wings, you know, and, and Terra and the way that we built our relationship with Butters and, you know, Goldie had time for me, Ronnie Size had time for me. And I feel, again, like each one teach one, you know, you should take that and do it for someone else and when people ask me because people do ask me all the time like people that I, I might help out or give them something they'll be like oh like what can I do to repay I'll say just do it for someone else mm. when you're in your 30s and Mr. 20 something comes along which will happen then you just make sure you do the same for them and that's it yeah I remember um, and we'll play this clip really quick one of the first songs that you got, you know, royalties for um, was Ashley Waters and Richard Brenner's With You song. Yeah. Um, and you were working at, I believe, Abbey National at the yeah, time, yeah, yeah. Um, which is Santander now. But um, I wanted to play the clip first of all. So, Joe. Oh, dear. So, yeah. first, first of all, I want to ask you, how does it feel to see both of those people doing so well now, yeah. like almost two decades on, yeah. um, and yours, as well as yourself, like you guys all in different positions, how yeah. does it, did you ever imagine when producing for, for that particular track that you guys could imagine a no, career? No. The, the day I got my first PRS check, yeah. because that song got playlisted, I walked out my job, like that day. Yep. And I was like, well, it's possible. And I moved back into my mum's basement because I wasn't living at home at that time. Moved back into my mum's basement and we just, we grinded. I moved into the basement so we could rent the rooms. We were renting my bedroom to exchange students. So I slept on a mattress on the floor. In the daytime, I put it up against the wall, make beats all day, fall asleep, you know what I'm saying? And um, yeah, it's really cool seeing that, you know, me and Ash are still in touch. 
and you know we've got kids the same age and we don't live that far from each other so we've yeah. reconnected over I see him fairly often now and we talk about these times like a lot but again him and his stepfather saw me saw potential they registered me for PRS they told me what that even was mm. do you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. they they I didn't know anything about the business until I, until I met them, and it wasn't until they go, oh, look, this is PRS, this is how you do it, this is PPL, this is how you do it, and got me, got me started, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, yeah, another early, you know, mentorship, really, I suppose. Yeah, to see that when I was looking back and um, reading just various iterations of your biography was just crazy because you, you guys are still there at the yeah. top of your industry just doing completely different things, but still in music. And this is what it's about. It's we about had an talking. argument once, man. <laughs> Who? Me and Ash, like, years ago. And, and at the end, he was like, well, I'll see you at the top then, yeah? <laughs> well, I guess... You, and now I we're mean, here, you know what I'm mean, saying? Yeah, it's, it's like, crazy. Um, you spoke to something I wanted to tap into, which was education and the changing face of our industry in it. I think when I look at particularly a lot of like black communities, whether it's the dancehall community or whether it's the grime community or whether it's the hip hop community, and you even shared a Snoop Dogg clip the other day, um, him talking about the monetization, yeah. especially in the digital age of streaming and all of that. How important would you say, not even the community aspects, but actually the educational insights. So the, the story that you just said about Ashley and him signing you up and, and getting, you know, you signed up to get reimbursed for your kind of work. Yeah. How do you still, is that still a pertinent issue from behind the scenes, what you see? And how do you think we resolve that? Like in terms of giving creators, producers, songwriters, artists, we've heard Ray, you know, talk about yeah. it recently, their due diligence, their credit, and also their, their monetary kind of funding as well. Yeah. One, it's a different time. And the good thing is now is that like, when we started, it's not like there was like, a million examples ahead of us of people successfully doing it, coming from where we were coming from. So that's different to now, kids that are coming up and they see you know, their idols, like, they just have like, abundance, you know, like million quid deals and massive shows and all of that. That wasn't really the example for us. So I feel like people are maybe a bit more savvy and going, I can make a living off of this. Where we were like, oh, like, we can spend some time doing this. Like, the money's almost a bonus, you know. Mm. Like, if we can have a mixtape in the shop and a tune on radio, then that's about as far as we ever really saw it going. So it's, it's different now. I, um, I think it's important that people take time to, like, educate themselves on, on how to conduct business and how to create music as well, you know, like I was saying earlier, I was just like, we've never underestimated the power of like learning more. And I was like over the years, even then was like spending a lot of time and money just like trying to gather information and learn some stuff. I, I still do that now. Like I've got an iPad full of courses to complete and, and all this kind of stuff like music theory or whatever it is is gonna help me in that moment. Is, is, is super important, but there's better examples now than there was then. What's something you're learning now? What are one of those courses or what's something you're kind of fascinated about gaining more insight? Like music theory is just like the endless. So even something you think you know is probably best to like keep going over it. Like just this week I was at the piano and I played something and then I called Neil, who's like my theory confidant, Neil Waters, who's my arranger and trumpet player. He's worked on so much music with me. And he was like, yeah, that's this. And I was like, oh, I could have got to it this way. I don't know why it's taken me 15 years, but I'm here, I'm trying to remember something. But, you know, so the, I guess the, the point I'm making is that you can never learn 
too much, you know. So I, I just try and take everything in. I just I watch so much music documentaries on the, the, the artists, and still watching kind of tutorial videos on even basic stuff because it it just never hurts to just refresh on that stuff, and I need it to be able to make better what I want to contribute. Mm. Just for our audience, as a producer, yeah. can you demystify how it works on the back end from recording a song to getting paid for a song and what that process kind of looks like? Okay. <laughs> Depends on the scenario, but, you know, like... In, in the hardest ways, you do a thousand sessions. People have been sent to you do a thousand sessions. You know, you find a song that the artist likes and wants to use. Yeah. Their management like it. Do their label like it? Do the label think they want to use it? Is it a single? You know, eight months has already passed since your session. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Are they going to use it as a single? Okay, what are you going to pay? They say a button and a packet of crisps. You ask for a little bit more. They say no. <laughs> you go back and forth. That's another month. Do you know what I'm saying? You invoice. Eight months later you get half. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's really tough. And I think that what's kind of enabled me to, to cut through is actually having my own output and being able to do like things outside. Like I've never been like fully reliant on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you just lent into that. The fact that obviously you are a front facing artist as well as, you know, a producer for other yeah. artists. What is the biggest difference between that process? Because we have so many of those examples now. Yeah. Um, and it's taken, you know, ages for it to come to our own. You know, we've got Rico Love in the States. We've got you over here. We've got many other here, to be honest. We've got a whole ecosystem. But what, for you individually, is the biggest difference for crafting for yourself and like an album like you've done last year um, and you're continuing to work on or something you've done like for other artists, like in other artist projects? It's different for every artist. And the thing is with me is that I might only work with three artists in a year. Yeah. Like, so the year we made The New World, we made Koji Radical's Reason Smile, and we made Joel Culpepper, Sergeant Culpepper. Like, that was all at the same time. Yeah. And like, I would, like, I don't want to give the same thing to two different people. I'd rather just be like, okay, this is what I do for Koji. Like, this is what I do for Joel Culpepper. And they both get 100% of my time whilst we're working on, on that thing. And uh, it's not like just swindle type beats for everyone. So that means that my role changes. So sometimes with Koji, it's like showing him beats. Sometimes it's him showing me beats and going, oh, yeah. you know, we could do this. Sometimes I'm at the back of the room and being like strings there from, you know what I'm saying, this bar and I'm chatting with Neil and we're planning that out and, you know. So, and that's what keeps it fun, you know. So every, every song, every record, my role changes slightly. Sometimes it's super hands-on and sometimes it's really not, you know? Yeah. Your last album you recorded in Real World Studios. Yeah. Um, I remember doing um, the bug for it, but then just hearing the project and just being so... I was like, wow, you're taking jazz here. You're taking, you know, rap here as well. Um, for people who don't know, the project features the likes of Koji Radical, Nux, um, Akala, uh, Getz, who you've worked with many times over your career. Um, so many people, so many people, the names are, forgetting, uh, are skipping me, but you crafted that during the pandemic, during a time where you admitted it's on your IG where 
you were going through a tumultuous um, process creatively. And yep. I think we all were, to be honest, in, in different facets of our, our work streams. How did you, first of all, overcome that and then take the initiative to invite pretty much nearly in like 20 artists yeah. to a recording studio and how did you persuade them during such a hard time in all of our lives that we'll remember forever probably that album is the healing process mm. and it's also a healing process for a lot of the artists that are on that record and the people that I reached out to initially was a lot of people that I had been speaking to during that time that were also finding it hard to create you know so that's that's where a lot of that came from. Most people, the only person that was there that I hadn't worked with before, or at least known before, was Loyal Kana. Yeah. And Nux called him and was like, bro, you should come to this. And me and Loyal had like an hour phone call like a few days before, and then he, and then he came. Um, it wasn't that hard to convince people, man. It was like, it was more about convincing everyone that it was a good idea, and I wasn't ha having a breakdown <laughs> when I said, <laughs> For real, when what I were was, some of the reactions? What, no, like, are you having you a breakdown, Cam? Yeah, like <laughs> because I was like, we'd been locked down for so long. Everything else had been happening at the time. It was weird, you know. It's easy to forget what that moment actually felt like. Yeah. But if you like, take yourself back, like before the easing of the first lockdown, only left the house to protest. Do you know what I'm saying? It was just, yeah. it was sticky times. Didn't even know if it was okay outside, and. I was having a phone call with Joel and the idea came and I was talking. I was like, let's just go to real world. Like, everyone can come. Mm -hmm. Let's go. And when I got an idea, I'm like a dog with a bone. So it's just like then ringing everyone in my phone. We're going to real world. Like, boom, boom, boom. I was like, oh, who's going to pay for it? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, are you sure? Like, how are we going to do this? Like, we're in a pandemic. And I'm like, I'm not asking for permission. Like, we're going, sort of thing. Um, and we went. And then that album is what came back. And payback from Koji's album was done on those sessions as well. Yep. We did um, half of the strings for Getz's album on the same sessions as well. Um, so it's like the best decision I've like, kind of ever made. And um, after that week, like things just felt better. And everyone who came kind of told me that as well. It's like it just changed the direction from mm. this feeling of just doom and gloom to all of a sudden Everyone's like smiling. Like people cried in, you know, on that week when we was away. Like it was heavy. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? We had like mm. some of the deepest conversations. You imagine like a dinner table with Akala, Koji, Joy Crooks, Loyal Khan. Do you know what I'm saying? It's mm. like Poppy of Judah. These are interesting people that have a lot to say. And we all helped each other in that time. And the musicians as well. Yeah. We had our, you know, I had a whole room of string players like in the back and we would bring different artists in and be like, look, this is what we've written to your song. Yeah. And they would watch the strings be recorded for their songs and go, whoa, that was amazing. And I'd be mm. like, all right, cool, you out, next one coming in. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. For context, guys, Real World Recording Studios is a massive studio. It's got like multi rooms, small rooms, big rooms, and it's got a central piece um, where composers can kind of compose the productions and all of that. And yeah, each artist like recording in a booth and all of that with you guys. It's I also where it's where Jay Z and Kanye did uh, Watch the Throne. Okay. Beyonce's recorded okay. there. It's Peter Gabriel's studio. Yeah. Like the facility's not a joke. And it'd been sat empty for months. Like that, you know, there was like no one's been in this room for months because of lockdown. It's when studios weren't even open. Yeah. yeah. Google it. It's like, it's incredible. 
the most intricate kind of memory that you have from that time, I'd love for you to share if you can, because I remember talking about it with you and you said there were some, you know, first time parents in the room, as well as being artists, you said there was shared camaraderie about fatherhood, there was yeah. intergenerational dialogue, there was, you know, rappers who thought they had one verse but then completely switched it up when they heard something else. Yeah. So what was the most kind of provoking memory that you have this, today? There's actually, this is or so like the one that comes to mind first, if you, uh, if you have too many. That three of them have just come, Speak come about on my head. One is, uh, Rashi, Rashan Brown, yeah. amazing multi-instrumentalist, incredible producer, writer, everything. He's just like, he's like so good at everything it might make you feel a bit sick, you know. And um, he was like, oh, me and Junior got this song, like, and um, it's not on the album. It's actually not come out yet, which is, anyway, we'll get to that. Um, yeah, and it just, Rash at the grand piano and Junior, like, sang the song for everybody and then i looked around and it's like everybody was crying man like literally the whole and i don't know if anyone's ever seen like music actually just move a room like that and reduce people to tears but like it's powerful man that's one moment that 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 really really sticks out to me and then you know, we had Rachel Ammer was there and she mm-hmm. was expecting her son. Yeah. And it wasn't until coming home and uh, listening back to the album, I was like, I can hear like this maternal thread through this whole record. It changed the dynamic of the room, even though she just sat there and watched, you know, there's so m- the themes of that, that album. If you like listen again to Lost, to the lesson of my seat, listen to my seat, like, it's all in there. How how I've been, you know, I've, I I think without her in the room, actually, we might have had a very different album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said there was three. That. Yeah, Green Tea Ping's entrance, man. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, yeah. This is like the same day we recorded Payback. We recorded Blow Your Trumpet, and probably some others, but they were like the main tunes of the day. And Greeny come in, and she, you know, it's not that she didn't she didn't know everyone and stuff like that, but. Like, she came in and she's like burning bark as she come in, you know what I'm saying? So the room just like smells of her, <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So on brand. Yeah, and then she goes in the booth and the beat plays, but it was just like, her presence just like, it seemed to just change the environment. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like the whole room just turned green. Everyone was just in her world. And then Josette, who was um, the engineer, she, like, she was just like, like this at the speaker, she was like, yeah, this might be my favorite one, you know. I was like, yeah, she's like, she's sick. And I was like, yeah. You know, just like, I, I think what I really enjoy is like watching people just being taken by music. Like, that never gets old, watching people just like completely blown away by something or like move to like these emotional extremes, like through music alone. When you see that in real time, that's what I used to get from DJing a bit in a different way. Yeah. But it's different when you see like someone's heart on their sleeve. That's addictive. <laughs> Power to move you. You spoke about blow your trumpet, and um, not only is the visual incredible, but I think just the lyrical prowess, the performance, the production. I remember when I first played that track, and it was unreleased, and I was like, I can't share this. Like, and it was a couple of months as well. But. Um, I think it's one of your best displays of like work that I've heard, just in terms of every component coming together yeah. and the true kind of artistic yeah. flavour kind of coming through um, on all levels. How 
was it being in the room number one? And also, did you originally have that arrangement of artists to no. be on one record? Because yeah. I know that, you know, music is so unconventional in how it comes together. So I'd love to know how that arrangement came to be. Yeah. It just happened. I had the intro bit for that song. Funnily enough, that intro bit for that song is referencing like lots of funk fundamentals, you know, like so much of my music does. And kind of had that intro bit. I, I remember the other day, I actually sent it to Munya, you know, Munya Chihuahua. Like, yeah, I sent yeah. it to her, I was like, bruv, this would be like a cool, like, indent for like one of your skits or something. Or if you ever get a TV show, <laughs> it's like, you know, he's definitely done his thing now. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> can re engage, yeah, yeah. So then I started playing this beat in the studio because I just had my beat, so we was making beats in the main room. But then I had 200 beats on a laptop for people to just go through and they could just go in a room and write if they wanted to. And that was one of the beats. And then every time I played it, everyone was like, You gotta play this to Getz. And he was coming anyway because we were going to record strings for his album, yeah, Conflict of Interest. Yeah, played the beat. He's like, Yeah, cool, I love some of that. Like, Akala's in the room, Nox is in the room, Koji's in the room. Koji hears, like, the musical moment. He's like, that bit's mine. I was like, cool. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? He's like, I'll go last, that bit's mine. And then Getz is like, yeah, make my, uh, bring it right down for me. You know, still sharp and still. You put someone, you put Getz, Akala, Koji and Nox in the same room. Like, try not to come out of a banger, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Nobody was playing. Getz was writing like this on his phone. <laughs> he didn't show anyone until yeah. it was done, where yeah. normally he's like... Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Same with for Kyla. And it's, I placed it like in order. I wanted it to be like... Koji's section almost takes the message on to the next song. But uh, it was like, Nux was like, this is before Nux's album and stuff, yeah, you know? So yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. you know, fairly like, he's the youngest one, you know what I'm saying? So Nux first and then gets after like, it's almost like, oh, I'm going to go get my big brother. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then Akala after that. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just wanted to kind of show that, that brotherhood, like, you know, that, that Lion King scene when it's just like, yeah, I remember every you star in the sky is... <laughs> I wanted it to feel like that. <laughs> yeah, and you know I think it did. Um, I just find it so interesting that, like, the intergenerational kind of aspect of everything, and I think there were so many takeaways from each of their performances, yeah. um, whether it's cadence, flow, you know, Nux is super chill with it, but then Koji's super poetic with yeah. it, but then Getz is super just, Getz is going to be Getz aggressive with it, and then yeah. the is, you know, he teaches you something yeah. while he's still going back to the, the old days as well. Um, was there any performance that surprised you out of all of them or were they exactly how you expected it to kind of come out? I'm familiar with them all in it, so... Yeah. Yeah. Was anyone intimidated? Were any of the newer... Nah, man. No? Nah? nah, man. Nah. They're all heavy hitters, man. If, I mean, if they were intimidated, they hit it. Yeah. Well, you know. Like I say, it's like this... There's competition and there's friendly competition. Mm. And we have it like amongst ourselves and we used to have it like as DJs like playing, like we did want to like murk. Do you know what I'm saying? Everybody wants to lick down their brethren really. Mm. But it's healthy. And they're so different as well. You yeah. can't compare them in a way like, oh, who's better? Like who had the better verses? Yeah. Koji did Koji, Nux did Nux. And that was 
the theme for the whole week. There was no real competition. The only rule was there was no rules. And that's what I said to everyone. Jump on what you want to jump on. Don't jump on what you don't want to jump on. Simple. If you've got an idea, stand up, get in the booth, look, we'll just get it. And that, it, that album, I was the most open. And with the musicians, it's like the most collaborative project I've ever done. Mm. Whereas just like, if someone was like, I got a hook, I was like, cool, that's the hook. Yeah. It wasn't, oh, let's try it, you know? I know you kind of themed it, like, um, artistically, kind of, you referenced, like, the Avengers, like, yeah. all of them having their own superpower um, and coming together to kind of just showcase that in a beautiful way. When did that reference kind of land with you? Was it as that week was happening yeah. or was it, like, in the after stages? It was while we was there because someone had called me Xavier while we was there or whatever. Okay. <laughs> and then and I was, like... What fascinates me with the X-Men, yeah, is that you're... Firstly, the goodies and the baddies are baddies. They're fighting for the same cause. And then two, the heroes, they fight on the front line, but they also teach the kids in the school. And like real world in our heads, right? we, were, we were all joking about it. Like Poppy and Joel were arguing over who gets to be Wolverine, you know what I'm saying? And, <laughs> you know, everybody brings something to the table and not only are they willing and able to get on the front line and... and and fight for what they believe in, but they're also like in the school we're teaching the next generation to do the same thing. And I just really like that sentiment. Uh. Yeah. Um, you've also kind of navigated into TV now, which was one of your most recent announcements. And that is Champion, which will um, debut on- Saturday. Yeah, literally. So Netflix and BBC. How does it feel to see rap particularly represented on TV through things like Top Boy, Kid Adulthood, um, Adulthood, um, and all of the, and Jungle, even Jungle yeah. and Amazon Prime, just all the series we've seen over the different decades in yeah. various iterations. How does it feel to see rap, specifically in Grime as well, like represented in that way? Yeah, amazing, man. And like, you know, this is like, this is BBC One, it's not BBC Three. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, and it's Netflix. Mm -hmm. like, Top Boy's on Netflix, it's not two o'clock on Channel Z. Yeah. And that's so important that it's becoming part of mainstream culture. And it progressing in the same way that music has. And you see a lot of the same people working in and, in and around it, you know. Um, it feels almost like the same thing, you know. It's like more progression as just us, like just culturally, like as a people. Mm. Not, it's not just about rap, it's, it's, it's about culture. Yeah, you know, being seen like in this way, like this is super new, man. Mm. Like I'm Generation Desmonds, bruv. Like it was <laughs> so iconic. So yeah. Do you know what I'm way. saying? Where yeah. it's just like one channel, like or one program. Yeah. Where you know, waiting top of the pops for like the Will Smith to come on. It's like only yeah. the rap tune, like sitting through all this rock that I'm not really that interested in. Do you know what I mean? But now it's like it's part of the main conversation and yeah, like what it means. Like the way I see, like my kids take it in, even, and I'm just like, wow, it's just, it's a different world, and how exciting is the the next phase gonna be, mm. and how lucky am I to be a part of it, and how glad I am that because I always wanted to do TV and film. I've been talking about this for years and years. People come to my house like, why is there sheet music on your panel? I'm like, well, like one day I'm gonna work on TV and film. Like that's my dream. Like Quincy Jones did it. I'm gonna do it, and now I'm in it. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? So. Um, it's like confirmation that this was all worth it yeah. for everyone.
Yeah, I was going to reference that I remember on our last call, like, you, you, this was an ambition for you. Yeah. Um, there were, I don't know, to my knowledge, no conversations at the time, but yeah. Yeah. as the months went on and years went on across the pandemic, this opportunity presented itself and you're now scoring one of the most highly anticipated shows, you know, coming out this week, as you said. So how nav navigating that process as being a conventional producer in the music space to now operating in this this kind of space with networks, with, yeah. you know, kind of sync teams and yeah. kind of artists, you know, approvals in that way yeah. and deciding scores for scenes and, you know, the, the visual component, not just being a music video, but being an actual yeah. scene as part of a series, as part of an episode in that series. The differences. Talk to me about the nuances of the differences there. Um, I mean, there's a lot of similarities also, but... Yeah, well, we can talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know... I guess the main difference is, is there's like an end goal, a deadline, a show date, yeah. a scene already written. All the things that I thought would be the hardest things about it weren't the hardest things about it. Like being thrown into rooms with strangers and being asked to like come up with a song at the end of the day, like doing that over and over and over and over again, or even just making beats on your, by yourself, like basically like picking ideas out the sky starting from zero and trying to finish with music yeah i didn't really realize but that's much harder than watching a scene and writing to it do you know what i'm saying it's like i can read the, the emotion on someone's face and i know what chord goes with it mm. whereas so in a way i don't want to say like i, like I find it easy but i learned quickly that the skill set that i'd picked up through producing records and from my, releasing my own records, working with musicians, it's all transferable, and it, and it means I've been able to come into this um, like in an effective way. And I also did some learning on the sly, you know, like I, I worked like with more established composers, like not under swindle, learning the craft. Do you know what I'm saying? Independent films. Do you know what I'm saying? Didn't need the accolade, just needed to learn how it's done and see how it goes and just take time to be studious, you know? That brings me to craft as well. Yeah, how, how often do you think it is important to step outside of yourself and kind of, a lot of people say touch grass now, but like touch grass in terms of actually seeing how the landscape's changed since you've come in and like um, step out of that tunnel vision kind of way of being. How important, how regularly do you feel like that's important to do if it's, um, a time scale or do you just do it like sporadically like spontaneously as, as soon as I start feeling like as soon as I get like itchy feet I'd act on it and, and I always have you know that was part of me kind of going from mixtapes into DJing and vinyl was me going oh like how do I get past doing people's mixtapes they're not asking me to do the albums like, yeah so going to DJing and then me going do you know, I think I could contribute more than what I'm doing here and I don't see how I can just like travel and DJ for the rest of my life. I'm going to stop here and do something else. That's another one, you know, and then going, oh, you know, maybe I should st start taking my steps into doing TV and film. It's another one. Like some of the hardest decisions like I've ever made ended up being the most important ones and where it would be sometimes easy just to not upset the balance and just keep doing what you was doing. But I've, I'm like, nah, something doesn't feel right. I'd, I just need to go this way for a bit. 
has like has always served me. So I, ju- I do my best to like always listen to that intuition, basically. I, su- I suppose you know. Yeah. So you've essentially just jumped off the ledge. Yeah. In your career, and you continue yeah. to do that, and that's how you evolve. That's what it sounds like you're saying. So it's like having new careers. It's like yeah. I'm saying this stuff. It's like yeah, new new careers. Working with Ash, his first careers. Working with Barters was my second career. You know, and then doing my those independent albums, the Peace Love and Music, the trilogy. That's its own section. No more normal to the the new to world. Normal. That's its whole career. And now I feel like I get to start like oh, I get another career. This is day one. This is my first gig, really. Yeah. And for as long as I'm able to do that, then this you know my long career becomes like a, a different journey and I've been able to like be here for much longer than maybe I would have been had I not made those changes. Yeah. Um, does it still get scary? Like that, that first time, I remember when I did it in my career, jumping off the legend, you know, getting into writing um, and then going into my second career, which is now, you know, speaking and yeah. all of that. But in terms of you jumping off the ledge, does it ever feel... Did, do you get that that fear? Like, does it still come to you? Does that no, does nerves, anticipation? Yeah, I, I just, I actually just live in fear, man. <laughs> like the, to yeah, a point, yeah, even though yeah. I really don't, like, even though I really don't, I really do. And yeah. the, and, and what I mean is that is like, I'm never easy. Like, people that, that know me will let you know. Like, I'm never just, oh, let's just see what happens. Like, that's not me. Like, I, I, I might be able to see a whole year in front of me of work and be like, yeah, but what about next year? Do you know what I'm saying? Because, like I say, we got we got into this not knowing that I w- that it was gonna last this long. So, I I got so used to like fighting for it all the time and like hustling for it all the time. Like it's gonna be taken away from me. Yeah. That that's still in me now. Mm. You know, I've, I'm only now spending time to learn like how to chill. Like if I wake up at six, I don't have to just run straight in the studio. I will still have a job at the end of the day. Like it's okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that I don't, I don't know if it should be called fear, but whatever that thing is, although it can be unhealthy, it also is a vehicle for me. Mm. Yeah. In relation to um, composing for TV um, and film. Yeah. Are there any um, plans to, well, I'm sure there are plans to do films, but are there any specific offers on the table? Are there any things you're exploring? There might be. Yeah. <laughs> sign an NDA. <laughs> Management at the back there. Um, okay, some good signs. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm in, like, you're we're in. doing more, man. Like, 100%. I really enjoy doing that. I yeah. want to do more. Um, and, yeah, like, there's going to be more. Is there a genre of TV or film that you'd love to do? Because obviously action, the Marvels that we spoke about before are completely different. I would love to, to do I'd, I'd, I was so close to doing like the perfect action series that I didn't get. You know, there's still like, same with music on a wider scale that you're always like just around the corner from like the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. Sometimes you get it and sometimes you, you don't. I always say, you know, what's for you won't pass you. Yeah, so for you sure. just... You know what I mean? Every no is a step closer to the yes. So I'm still getting no's, you know what I'm saying? I'm still missing out on the odd thing. Yeah. But I know, like, it's to get me to the next, the right thing. So, mm. you know, I wrote to something yesterday. So that might be the next thing that I work on. 
you know, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just super interested and motivated where like black cinema and TV is going. Mm. And I think that when stories are being represented literally from where I'm from, that's from South London, that was Lewisham roundabout, you know, I've been stuck in traffic around that roundabout so many times. (laughs) It's ever going to be (laughs) so So, like, I really know it. Like I'm like, I've come from the music industry. This is about the music industry. So I'm realizing now that what may have worked against me in the past is like coming from grime or coming from the underground or my background is actually an asset now yeah. in, in these programs because lots of people need someone that understands grime and also jazz and also film school or classical or whatever that is, you know. So 100%. it's those, those programs that we'll probably see mm. me doing in the most immediate future, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting syncs I saw was, um, and I knew it should have been for a soundtrack as soon as I heard it, was Little Sins' Venom, and then it ended up being in Venom 2, and I was just yeah. like, wow, this can actually yeah. like happen and on a mass scale like that. Yeah. Um, so it's a win for her, but it segues into my next kind of um, phase of the conversation, which is... You know, seeing the likes of Little Sims, there was a year, I think it was either last year or the year before, where I was like, Little Sims, Nux and Koji have just like bossed it like changed in terms it, of changed the they've changed how big scale rap can be and what it can look like and how multifaceted it can look like in the UK on the ground we've always had it it's just in terms of the visibility and they've all retrospectively in their own kind of positions built that they've all been a part of that yeah. in their own different ways um, being a part of Koji specifically's journey and Nux but Koji more so in terms of executive producing um, his debut album Reason to Smile um, I remember talking to you when I was doing research for my GQ interview last year with him and I remember you just saying that you motivated him at a point where he was uncertain about, you know, um, some of the choices he was making creatively and even crafting the album. And just that relationship, seeing you guys at the Ivers this year, seeing him at at Mercury Wards last year, how is it to, how did you guys meet? I know how you met, but for the audience here, and also just building that kind of brotherhood um, and kind of artistic relationship. Talk to me about the building blocks in that. Um, We met in Russia. Yeah, I didn't want to say I wanted you. <laughs> yeah, we met in Russia before the war. <laughs> yeah, super, quite random, really. Again, Elijah sent me a video and was like, you should check this this guy out. Like, he's got something. It was one of his early videos. He was shooting his videos, like, on his blog. I yeah. Think. And it was just different, man. Like, you know, like, he was, he was in makeup and the shots were different and his tone was different. And we were both just like, yeah, we need to, like, keep an eye on this. This is really interesting. I've always, like, looked for those artists. Back in the day, those people remember, but there was an artist called Purple that I used to work with. And he was, like, the conscious grime rapper, you know, like, grime artist. And anyway, he's, this seemed to be, like, the continuation of that thread. Like, I've always been on the left anyway, you know. I'm kind of outside of the main thing, if that makes sense, you know, and um, yeah, I guess Elijah must have texted me and said, you know what, you guys are actually playing in Moscow on the same night I was DJing in Moscow, I tweeted him, oh, what's going on, you're playing in Moscow, I might come to your show, where is it, he t- tweeted me back, it's the same venue that you're playing at, so I was doing the night party, he was doing the day party, I went there early, watched his show, he stayed late, he watched my show, like, we spoke loads that night. He saw my, me play music. I saw him play music. So we, we kind of got that bit over. And then I was like, you know, I've been working at a Red Bull in London. I'm going there. It might have even been the next day or the day after. It's like 
that week for sure, like maybe two days later, he came to Red Bull and we did come in home and water straight away. And that was, that was my first session with, with Koji. And then, yes, yeah, like since then, it's just, yeah, it's just been building on, on that relationship and that energy. But yeah, I still remember that first day, just coming up with those songs. Mm. Water were just like, it just felt really good. Mm. It was the, we did that second. We did Coming Home first. I had that idea already. I didn't have the drums. I just had the horn section. And, I, I, you know, I said to him, like, imagine you're Aladdin riding the back of the elephant. And that's why the song's called Coming Home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And because uh, coming back as a prince, that was it. Made that song, made Water straight after. He was like, oh, should we get Mahalia on it? I was like, yeah, if you could reach out to her, like, why not? And then, yeah, th- those songs ended up being such important songs for me on my journey with No More Normal and then, and then him on, on, on his journey that, yeah, it just seemed mental not to build on that. And then we went and did the Cashmere Tears record, actually, yeah. before doing, doing his album. And, um, yeah. How is it? What? How has it been building that relationship with him, though? In terms of how has he grown as an artist to you, as someone who's seen so much in this industry, and even before you met him, you saw yep. so much prior, and then to see what he's added to kind of the um, equation. Yep. Just talk to me about yeah, how he's grown and how you've seen him grow um, over those projects and, and releases. Even just as a person, man. Yeah, man. just as a person too. And that's this is like. One of the amazing things about music that you just in it so long, you don't realise. One day you look around and you realise like we've all grown up in front of each other. Do you know what I'm saying? So um, one thing that was clear with him and kind of reminded me of Getz in this way, like he just mm. cared more than most people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he'll obsess over that bar and change that word or do you know what I'm saying? He cares about how his voice sounds. He cares yeah. like a musician cares. He practices, he learns it and... Um, before that, the most person I saw that the most in was Getz, because Getz was always like that. Like, no, I need this mic, I want that preamp, and oh, shall I do it again? And what about this voice? And Do you know what I mean? Not just like, get on the mic, do it in one take, that would do. Because a lot of people are like that, you know, but some people care more than others. Koji was always like that. And yeah, we've been able to build something. And yeah, I've, had, I've added value there, but not without, you know, the vehicle for that is, the fact that he has ideas and he has an identity and he's willing to explore. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like it's not like I could have just done that for anyone. Yeah, of course. He he's super special in that like he knows what he wants. Like he's really himself, you know. And he's ready to be himself on record. He's not scared. He doesn't he doesn't have to play the macho thing. He doesn't have to you know what I mean? He's yeah. just like making honest art and that always resonate with with me. Mm. And I was the same. So there was no, like, we never had to, like, choose our words carefully in front of each other. Yeah, for sure. I'd just be like, bruv, do that again, like, like that word. Or he'll be like, oh, we, can we change the drums here? Because our common goal was to make the best music possible. There's no ego involved. Yeah, I was going to say ego was lessened for the creator good. 100%. Yeah. Better the artist, the less the ego, man, always. Mm. Has he taught, obviously he probably has taught you so much, but so much. is there anything that stands out in terms of how you grow as a producer that he's imparted into you from his experiences as well? Yeah, because, you know, him bringing me kind of like exec role on 
on reason to smile you know it's like we had other producers in you know obviously i produced a bunch of tracks on there and could yeah. produce a bunch of tracks yeah but sometimes on those like on those other tracks i produce other people i might only be like replacing instruments like a lot of the, the a lot of that work was like oh why don't we just why that should be real guitar that should be why don't we get my man to play bass on this and why don't we put a sh string moment here and um and him kind of trusting me and allowing me to do that yeah, t taught me how to produce in another way, it, it, to, to a point, I suppose, yeah. Mm. Um, because I'd always been so hands-on with everything, you know, bef before that point, so, yeah. I, I, I would say that, just being open to, like, changing my role and, and everything like, like that. And just trying it. Yeah, he was just willing to try. Mm. Was that your first exec produced role on an album or had you done anything prior? I had, but not officially. Role? Well, I did Ash's mixtape. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? So, but I did. On, in terms of like an out and LP. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. release on that uh, label, everything yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. That was your first. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I had like, my own albums. And, you know, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's the first time. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, I collaborated with KZ on it. Yes, yeah, KZ's, KZ's, yeah, KZ's you know, amazing. He's, he was in the wings the whole time. He was working yeah. with Coach before before I met them and they had, yeah. they had built up their own thing. So, yeah. You know. Yeah, KZ's huge. Did Amore's latest album as well. Yeah. What is your favorite instrument? I forgot to ask, like, before. Um, what, it was meant to be one of the earlier questions, saw it on the sheet. Um, what is your favorite instrument and why, if you have a favorite instrument? Like, at the moment, that this week, it's the harp. <laughs> so it's a weekly thing, so it changes, yeah, like, man. a monthly thing. Yeah. Okay, why the harp? I just want to work with more harp, because how beautiful is the harp, man? <laughs> and when it's placed in, the, in like, a like, specific way to, mm. like, reveal a certain chord, it's just, like... It's so powerful. We had a harp. We did um, an adaptation of um, Porgy and Bess for Radio Force. Like, yeah. And, um, Crazy. Um, we worked with the BBC Concert Orchestra for that, and yeah. they had a harp, and it just blew my mind. Like, yeah. Had you, beautiful, had, beautiful instrument. I'll, I want to work with more harps. Was that your first time working with the harp? Or? Yeah, it was my second time recording a harp. Okay. My first time, that, that the first. I met a harp player in, in LA and she works more like other musicians that I work with, like I might chuck her some chords, she'll play them. That kind of thing, studio, jammy, mm. but this was like sheet music written, very deliberate. Mm. This is the harp part, this is where it goes and it's just so effective in that way. Before that it was the cello, I love cellos, man. I love <laughs> anything that I haven't used in a while, that's... You know, I like the newness, you know. Mm. I played keys on everything for so long. By the time I got to, like, the, the new world and, and it may be even no more normal. But I was kind of sick on my own keyboard. So I was like, oh, it's just like guitars, guitars, guitars. Now less guitars. I'm always going to love bass instruments, trombones, <laughs> tubers, cellos, mm. double basses. It's just endless, right? You're saying everything. I, I, knew, yeah, you, I knew you'd go there. I knew you'd yeah. go there. Um, obviously, jazz is one of your first segues into music. We discussed that earlier. Um, jazz has grown so much mm. to the point where, you know, London collectives are evolving the canon of jazz. Washington, D.C. is a hotbed of jazz. Montreal mm. is a mm. hotbed of jazz in terms of evolving the canon, new ways of experimentation. Do you still watch the genre as um, prolifically as you did as a kid? And if you do, what are some of the most interesting shifts that you've noticed over time? I would say I see far more now, actually, just 
Like you used to have to look for jazz before. When I made my album Long Live the Jazz, someone said to me, like, that title's gonna put people off. <laughs> like no one's gonna listen to an album with jazz written on the cover, like, what are you thinking? And then like a few years later, it's like, jazz is the biggest thing since sliced bread again. And on. it's so thingy, it's just like, Everybody loves jazz, even if they don't realize that they love jazz. But yeah, for a long time, you had to go out your way to look for it. My dad would just listen to Jazz FM in the car. That was where I heard it in his own record collection. But then now, catch Jazz in Peckham, bruv. Yeah, <laughs> Hackney, Peckham. This is it. So, like the comparables between what those guys are doing, the community that they've built, built especially early on, in places like Steam Down, and uh, Tomorrow's Warriors yep. and th th these kind of areas where um, the, the talent is like nurtured and given facility and place to practice and everything really reminds me a lot of what we had in grime with our pirate radio stations and our record uh, shops and our little crews. Like, and then the cross-pollination, like we would have D-Double on our set yep. for a thing, or Jamie would come in for, for a set, just the same way. Like Nubaya might just pop over to that stage and play with Joe Armand Jones for a go. And I, I was like, it kind of felt like the moment I was always waiting for with the way things. And then if you see like Ezra Collective show just from the weekend at Glastonbury, and you're just like, this is full circle, man. It's insane. And then again, look how we use the platform as well. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know if anyone's seen that set, but like, yeah, definitely watch. You yeah. know, his his output was just full of positivity, and and he he didn't hesitate to to big people up, and he brought kids from school on the stage with him, and and he used it to like as a vehicle for positivity. And I'm like, yeah, man, like that's actually what it's about, still. Yeah. Um, are there any contemporary artists that you still would love to work with as well so in the same way that you've kind of done the Nurks, the koji loyal kana who you first time worked with on the last album um are there any new cats in the uk specifically that you're i want to work with strands do? man this kid's strands okay yeah 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 i like I, I can feel like all this like um g unit 50 yeah. like influence music come in and me and like my favorite producer is quincy jones and the Good choice. Second is Dre for me, man. Okay. Like, Dr. Dre. Like, yeah, that's like my other goat. And I can feel that that's not a million miles away from that. And that's, I'd like to be a part of taking it mm. maybe a bit closer towards Dre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. The, 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 those cuts. And I, I want to get to know, like, the new generations of rappers as well. Mm. I want to know what's going on. We've been looking at, like, Clavish, I've just learned yeah, of. Yeah. Uh, last week, I don't want to take the phone out as fine. Yeah, we'll, I don't want to say do only because I don't want to be getting names wrong. Yeah. Yeah, we all got to do it. But um, and I'm probably super late, and you guys already know I, I spoke to Bro. But um, Zeno Vinci, man. Okay. Good choice. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that, this is the stuff that excites me, man. It's just mm -hmm. like people come in, fresh ideas, and just honestly like being themselves. Mm. Yeah, and it's broad from the more conscious stuff to the more gangster stuff. Like, yeah. yeah. There's an ongoing debate um, on samples, right? Mm -hmm. Like in music and samples, as we know, like people who actually like listen to music probably like um, have been there since the dawn of time. And yeah. that's basically how hip hop 
you know, continue to evolve and why you hear like jazz influences on it as well. Um, however, people have argued that it's being used more thickly now, particularly in genres like drill. And I'm not like trying to demonize a genre because I love yeah. drill as well. But um, I wanted to get your take on it. If you've seen the debate, heard some of the songs that are overly yeah. sampled. And as a producer, um, someone who uses samples and interpolations as well, how do you find that conversation? Is it helpful? Um, and what what would you contribute, if anything, to the discussion, even if it's just a lesson? I'd say, first, I'd say I love sample music. Yeah. Um, I haven't sampled in my own music for years. Yeah. In fact, there isn't anything out with a sample in it that you could find of mine. Um, it's funny because like, I've been thinking about this. Like, I spent the last two weeks like sampling my own records. Okay. All right. Making new beats out of them. I just flex. thought, well, if I'm going to clear a sample, I may as well be one that I produced. That's a flex. Joel Culpepper's record's full of soul samples, bro. Yeah. Right? So I've been doing that. That's been really fun. Um, I, I think that with most things, it's about the intent, man. Because when you take a sample and your intention is to make good music, you'll come out with good music. When you take a sample and your intent is to sell records because of the sample, we can hear it. That's my, that's my thing. So, you know, is it... I, yeah, I think where people could potentially have a problem where it's just like can clearly contrived if you take this sample, it's going to do such and such numbers. Like how many, how many versions of doop, 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 do we need? Like, I don't know who sampled that tune. I'm not sending for anyone, but <laughs> don't worry, do, do you get the point? Yeah. I just think it's the intent. No, because someone can take that tune and just be like, oh, what if you flipped it in this way? And that yeah, would be yeah, so yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. in an office also goes, take that tune, it'll be a hit, put this in it. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not interested in that. But I'm not that interested in music that's designed for monetary purpose. Like, I'm still on the other side where I want to make music for creative satisfaction and monetize it later. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that's not everyone's MO, but that's, that's how I listen to music, you know, that, and that's, that's how I create music still, because mm. I love music. We obviously, I've nodded to your social, how you use, how you use your socials, and it's purely for kind of the love of music. Yeah. Um, you know, and kind of educational purposes and to just showcase how good your kids are getting at music. We'll get into that and yeah. fatherhood in a second. Um, but I want to ask you if you feel like there are too many voices in the room now in terms of music commentary um, and the landscape of music. Obviously, in your generation of music, when you were coming up, it was used to kind of provide platforms for people, especially, you know, rappers and some niche singers as well. Um, you know, we see, you know, the GRM gala coming up as well. They they were pivotal in that kind of era of things as well. Mixtape madness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you feel like there are too many cooks in the room in terms of when it comes to everything outside of the music and kind of commentary culture? Short answer is probably yes. Okay. But they, like, I'm not like a massive consumer yeah. of that stuff. So I don't know everything that goes on. Sometimes I, I have like a narrow Tunnel view vision, yeah. of the internet and, you know, it's not something I enjoy, to be honest. I like enjoying myself, have fun. Like if I post, it's because I had a good idea and I just wanted to share it or I'm so proud of like what my daughter's doing. I just wanted to show off a little yeah. bit. I don't, yeah, I'm not that interested in social media. I kind of, 
if I spend too much time watching these things, I feel guilty for wasting my time. Do you know what I'm saying? So it doesn't end in a good place for me. So um, it's healthy that people are just having conversations, though. Yeah. You know, but again, anyone can set up a camera in a room, put a microphone in front and then say whatever they want. And someone else will take it and go, oh, yeah, me too. Doesn't. It's only as important as the weight you put on it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Completely get you. Um, you're one of the artists who has, you've alluded to it a lot, seen the transition from analog kind of music to digital in terms of streaming um, yep. and the segue of, you know, the Spotify's, the Apple Music's, LimeWire for a period before we got there, um, Napster, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. What would you say some of the biggest changes in terms of how you sold music, how you made music, and then how you kind of benefited from music was like in that transition? Vinyl probably was like the biggest thing. Um, and we kind of came in at like, not even at vinyl's height or anything. We used to hear stories about like what guys from garage and drum and bass used to do in, in vinyl, and we could never dream of like selling that amount of records. And actually now, compared to today's standard, we had it pretty good, you know? So the fact that we were even able to like press up vinyl with, in a reasonable time frame um, and sell it independently ourselves as well, was just an easy way to monetize, you know, our art. Um, and it gave people something in their hands as well, you know. So then these records become like collectibles and stuff, you know. I see my own records like being sold for hundreds of pounds or whatever, and it kind of blows my mind, That's but insane. it just shows that how special that, that time was, you know. Um, and then, yeah, that kind of, come into a close it's not a close for everybody but yeah it's not it's not the main thing like it like it was you know and that I actually bought my house like that you know do, doing Tonight. independent records that didn't sell like hundreds of thousands or whatever but I, we, I was able to get it together Elijah says to me all the time like you live in peace love and music like that's how I got the deposit together from my house <laughs> like you said that isn't it do you know what I'm saying it's just like got our heads down grinded it out and yeah yeah Speaking of Elijah, obviously um, he did a, a DJ set recently in Brazil, and you know he's doing DJing again and all of that. Um, would you? Right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, would you get back into that lifestyle, like of DJing again, or do you feel like it's the time that's I, I, passed you? I, I did one show like in Manchester this year for a mate. It was their birthday. Yeah. I just come out, come out the woodwork for yeah. yeah, I enjoyed it a lot, man. Yeah. So I did think about doing something. This year is actually ten years since Long Live the Jazz, that the first album that actually even took me on that journey. So maybe, but it would just have to be in short stints. Yeah. Because like great. I really truly I'm more valuable in the studio, man. Yeah. And and I and I had such an amazing time like on the road and I learned so much about people, about music, about culture how to make people dance, like what music works universally. It's like, I, I owe so much to that time in my life, mm. but I feel like there's probably people that can contribute more meaningfully now to that. And my role mm. really should be in the studio and maybe come out on a little, do you know what I'm saying? Pop out, pop out Yeah, quick. make it yeah, special yeah. here and there, but like, I won't go back DJing full time now. Okay. Um, is there a difference in emotions that, producing and DJing provide. Yeah. Yeah, I never see no one cry in the club. 
Oh, not for any good reason. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Thanks, Joe. Yeah, it, yeah, it is very different. And that was the reason for No More Normal. And even part of that title was going like, I don't want to just make music to, for the dance floor. I don't want every tune to have to like rage out. Like I don't want that. I'm not aiming for a reload all the time now. I just want to make music. This actually the aim was like I'd like some music on radio, and mm. we kind of like achieved that. I suppose that you know yeah. with that record. And um, yeah, that was the plan. Oh, let's go Red Bull. Shut the door and make music for music's sake, not for the dance. Like it okay. doesn't have to have an eight-bar intro of hi hat for the mix. Like it doesn't, you know it doesn't have yeah. to have a big bass line. It just has to be music to just satisfy you in a different way and that music then travels a different path in a mm. lot of ways like instrumental music that does go off in a club can go further in a way like to was like oh they want you to go play in the philippines or new zealand yeah. or china and yeah I'm just like it's because the music doesn't have lyrics on it it's just traveling yeah but um the vocal music and these the other albums that i've done um they travel further at home and and they you know they go on radio there was one point where we had playlists on like one extra uh, Radio One and Radio Six at yeah. the same time. If we got one more BBC Radio, we would have that would have been the record that um, Niles Barkley has with Crazy. Like it's the only oh, time where insane. tunes been. Yeah. You know I mean, was that close? And I was just like, wow, like songs are powerful. You know, powerful so, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you use that power to impart on your kids. Um, yeah which we see on IG a lot. They yeah. make guest appearances. Um, you give us updates on their kind of <laughs> musical progress. Yeah. Um, your daughter in particular, uh, I think you said grade six when we sat down for lunch or something. You said that there's, yeah, there, she's she's a star in waiting, you kind of said over yeah. lunch a few months ago when we were like organizing this. Please talk to me about the full circle moment of you now being a father. Um, teaching your kids music as your dad kind of taught you yeah. and just the, the power in kind of family and family um, in, in creation. In creation yeah. of music. I mean, it's done so much for me, man. It's just like made me a better person. <laughs> Sounds crazy, but it just has like having people to look out for and look after. And, and also it's like nobody loves you like your daughter, man. So when you feel that kind of love, like not even your mother loves you like your daughter loves you. It's like, it's a different, do you know what I'm saying? It's just nice. I have, I, I have so much to work for now and be motivated for. So there's no time to mess about. And then I used to worry like, because outside of music, I don't like know that much. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? So that's the main thing that I'm actually even able to teach them. Mm. Um, But the good thing about music is that it teaches, you know, different things at the same time. It is maths and English and science. Yeah and Latin if you want it to be, and whatever else, you know? Um, and I think that learning music and learning a musical instrument can enrich any child's life, to be honest, and has so much value, mm. disciplines, and gets your brain working in this way. And then I'm just like over the moon because my daughter is like completely like got the bug for music and she wants to do nothing else with her time. She's like all over it. She comes in studio with us, you know, she's met so many artists and jammed with so many artists. Yeah. It's like super motivated to learn. So for as long as she enjoys it, like I'll just mm. keep taking her down that path, yeah. What instruments is she playing right now? She plays uh, drums and she plays piano. Like, mm. That's the main two. She's got guitars and other bits and stuff, but that's the main two that she's making real progress on, yeah. That's incredible. Um, before we go to questions from the audience, um, what do you think your legacy is thus far? 
and what do you want your legacy to be if you think about that question? Um, it's funny because I think all the time like, oh, this is about legacy, 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 but I never like put it into a word like that's what the legacy is. Yeah. I'm just like, let me just contribute as much as I can while I'm here so that I have a legacy. But I guess I want it, I want to be known for contributing something positive and changing people's life with, with my music. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's the main thing. I, like, I used to ask myself, even just part of like, changing as a person and during that peace, love and music time was yeah, in yeah. my head going, how many people can I positive, uh, how many people can I impact positively on like, a normal day? Do you know what I'm saying? So instead of just going to the shop and like, asking for cigarettes, like, smile at the lady behind the counter and ask her how her day's been. And, you know what I'm saying? Like, I kind of like that stuff and that's what I want. I want to leave people with positive memory. Yeah. That, like, I, w I would like that to be my legacy, yeah. Little things. Um, we're going to go to questions, but before we do, can I just get a huge round of applause for Amazing Spindle? Thank you so much. Go all night. Um, I, um, I learned so much and I love these conversations because I get to just listen and like learn from the person and subject in front of me. Um, so thank you for your time. Thank you for saying yes straight away. Um, thank you to management and everything. But I want to flip to you guys. Are there any questions, um, burning insights, anything I missed? Um, okay. And then like the link in Japan was through... Um, it's through Mallow, then Swindle, and then Swindle opened the door for the rest of us to go. So the rest of us, like uh, me and Skill and Flavor D, Royalty, all the crew. So it's like that link maintained as well. And then again, it opens up us going, opened up doors for more demand them to go. So it's like, you do see the difference in one person going and making a, a positive impression and keeping the door open for people behind. And then those people still being part of the journey, maybe in different ways. And... And like even the, the, the Koji thing, like obviously we like music, innit? we're just exchanging ideas. One good example of this, and maybe like our differences in uh, perspective is when um, just before Dreamer's Disease came out, the Stormzy thing. Yeah. Swindle's like, oh, this guy, Stormzy is the guy. I was like, who's this guy? And then he sent me this video of Stormzy, like early Stormzy. I was like, okay, yeah, cool, whatever. But because he's from Croydon, like, and comes from Croydon, it meant more. Yeah. Whereas I'm just like, yeah, that is hard. He's in an Ikea car park, isn't it? Yeah, I was like, oh, it's hard, isn't it? Whatever, I didn't even think nothing of it. Yeah. But he's like, no, this is the, this is the guy. This is the next, like, yeah. committed yeah. to even, you don't care about what I think as well, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that being helpful. Mm -hmm. And then, like, that point, like, sometimes, like, with, with collectives and crews and, and all this stuff, it is interesting just to, to see, like, a bunch of people do have like maybe some collective overlaps, but then they all pull different directions. Yeah. So Swindle saying, oh, there's a tweet that you said, oh, Flavor D is the future in like 2014. And Flavor D's had a completely different career, successful in our own ways. And like us, we've, we've been together throughout and it had very different things, but the core of trying to make like a positive impression yeah. and making that like a point of view, like that is more like Swindle's thing. Mm. and maybe like that's rubbed off on all of us you know what I'm saying yeah. so like the yellow square is like my version of like peace love and music yeah. if that makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it does you know what I mean sense. having like a mm. like a yeah like a positive 
impact. Just it's, yeah, good to hear, different man. Meetings yeah. And, yeah. 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 Well, I think, I think that, that is like more influential than sometimes just, just, just tune. The rhythm is like, yeah, the culture maybe like a vessel, but the actual person yeah. is like probably yeah. as important. Yeah, I agree. That's why I do what I do to contextualize every, like, try and contextualize from my point of view what's going on and why the why, even the socio-political kind of ramifications of that, um, and kind of the cultural connective tissues as well. Something you said about regionalism, I think that's super important in in music and culture at large, particularly here and like in the states and even in Brazil now. You know, Jesse, which we all know, um, is out there now, and he's yeah. he's talking to me about all of that as well. So I think. Yeah, it's super important. And you mentioned the jazz thing as well. Like, those dons were on the records. So, like, No More Normal, if you, like, see the credits, like, it's, like, yeah. Manso Brown and Yusuf Days and the Bayer Garcia and then, like, did, like, Quest for Coin with Ezra Collective yeah. and yeah. Jamie. It's, like, yeah. those things have been happening in the in the back. They're not the most popular songs or they're not the, like, um, some super thing that you'll see on some documentary or one extra, wherever it's going to be, but yeah. they still happened and those link-ups still forged all these other small things you know what i'm saying so maybe like um i don't know this if this is true but just in theory like say like nobaya being part of um no more normal for example it might have had an impression on her production and what she went to do in her own universe you know what i'm saying so there's like um, the flows of all of these sessions and exchanges of ideas are very they go much further out than the songs. Yeah. The songs are like a really small part of that. Mm. Um, it's not a question, but... No, it's an <laughs> educational piece. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we've got some more questions. Go for it. I, I was just going to say, um, are you interested at all in terms of like sound designing for the stage or like composing for theatre? For theatre? Yeah. yeah. Actually, like... Yeah, massively. So we did um, a radio drama uh, with a theatre director named Michael Buffong. Um, and like that was a version of like, this classic called Porgy and Bess. It's called Best Loves Porgy. And again, that was just like, about me like learning my chops. For th- I would love to do theatre. It's, um, it's tricky because, you know, funding is, is going down. It's... It, it's harder to make work than other than other stuff, but yeah, I would I would love to do fair. I would want just to be involved in something new and also to like just learn it. Yeah. You say you say you're um, getting into film more. I was wondering what the process of you pitching for a film. How does it work? Just just a quick overview of how that is. Um, currently, it would be like being sent a scene and then right into that scene and sending it back and going... So they have other people, like, basically quite an open yeah, pitch, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, pitching for it and just trying to... Really, like, at this stage, it's like, I'm never, like, I'm always willing to prove, like, the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? So I'm happy to, like, prove I can do it. Because I, I guess, I don't know if it's just in my head, but maybe the, the question above is, like, am I... Am I actually capable of writing for TV and film, or am I just like a grind producer? Do you know what I'm saying? I, I feel like sometimes could be the perception. So I'm happy to like work that little bit harder and like really prove that I can do it. Yeah. Do they give you a brief, like a brief, like the the director where they say like we want it to, to communicate this, or yeah. you just respond? Yeah. Often there might be like a temp track, or 
you know, with Champion, I sat with Candice before we started. It, that, that was different because she knew my music and everything like that. And she was like, I want you to work on this program. I've like, always wanted to work with you on something. So when this came up, I've like, you're my first choice. And I was like, amazing. And then we sat at a cafe and she was like, this is what the story is about. This is what I want it to feel like. This is what I want it to sound like. And then we did that for every episode. Watch every episode. Watch every scene. Like, this is how this character feels in this moment. And da -da -da -da. she came to the studio and I'm like at the piano watching scenes and going, oh, how about here? How about there? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about like wanting to still learn and progress. What methods do you use for learning at this point when your skill set is so high? Um, like just online stuff, man. Like YouTube channels, honestly. Um, there's a guy called Rick Beato. I just bought his course the other day. I don't know if anyone's seen his videos. He's like breaks down like some of the science behind like certain like chord progressions or the way songs are put together. Just copped his his course. I got like even musician like or ear training apps. I got apps that will play you two notes and ask you to pick on a multiple choice. Like what's the interval, that kind of thing. It's crazy. Sitting at the piano for as long as I've. And also, actually, one thing I should say is like working with and talking with people that know more than me and asking them. And I I was thinking this the other day. Like I often say how much I get from my dad, but one thing. I had to think about my mum the other day where, mm. like, when we lived, we lived in Brixton first, we had a fairly big house and we'd rent rooms to, like, again, exchange students and we'd have people from China, people from Japan, different places. And my mum would always, like, get them to teach her how to cook. So, like, now my mum can cook, like, any dish. Miss Trowdry over the road taught her how to cook. My mum does the baddest curry. That. Do you know what I'm saying? My <laughs> granny taught her how to do rice and peas. Like, my mum can do it. Like, Love that. any... And... I feel like I picked up on that, whereas people come to the house, like Dana Fisher will become like, bro, before you go, like, teach me something on the base. Now I pass it on to Lola, and I'm like, can you give Lola a lesson? Yeah. By the way, Lola has had lessons by, like, the greatest. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Lola's uh, his daughter, by the way. That's my daughter, my eldest daughter, yeah. But, like, I'll, I'll ring Neil Waters up all the time. Even last week, I'm just like, how do I get to this? Like, what does this mean? Like, da -da 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 -da. Just always, I'll learn from any, anyone, like, mm. even Rashi, like... Rashawn Brown, yeah. he's like my little brother, but there's still so much I can learn from him. Mm. And that, you know, I'll be like, how are you getting up and down the keyboard so quick? Like, I'm mm. never afraid to ask someone who knows more than me. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be the, I, the, I don't want to be the smartest in the room. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I think that's super important just because I think sometimes we're taught to be so siloed in our career and like yeah. asking for help is like, uh, it's, it's taught as a sign of failure. But I do, I do the same thing. Like writers I look up to, prolific writers, yeah. we have dialogues all the time. Yeah. Um, they read my work, I'm released. I read their work, I'm released and we edit each other's work. And yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's super important, you know, even in getting into this process, speaking, yeah. spoke to some of the best speakers I know across in the States and over here as well, yeah. because I think it's just super important to learn. So having that ethos from your mum, um, is super, super um, yeah. helpful and, and nourishing. You've got to remove your own ego away the from ego it has and got go, to go like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, some people look at For me real. weird when I'm like, yo, yeah. can you teach me something? Yeah. Like, you're asking me, do you know what I'm saying? Because it's image, like people want yeah, you to Yeah, but I don't care that, about that, yeah. I just want to be better. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and there's it, it some information, like someone says something to me like one time, it was like another artist, it was, um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say who it was, but anyway, they was, they, it was Natalie from Floetry. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. Legend. Just, right, okay. 
I met her with um, through Terry Walker one time, and and she goes, you know, like a lot of artists, they say like you hear people say things like no one can't tell me nothing, and she goes, you should never say that because like you can learn something from everyone. Agree. And I was just like, yeah, they were, you're right. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. There's not one person in this world that you can't learn something from. Like, mm. You should never be so closed off, like, like know it all. When I know what I know, I'm confident and I'm like... Of course. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm like, that note's wrong. Move that bass note. Move that 808 <laughs> down the semitone, please. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? But in other times, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm here to learn. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you did with the films. Like you like said I you did went with the film. And I know, films. I went yeah. and, and, the, and some of the composers, they're looking at me and they're like, oh, you're an established producer. And I'm like... I'm your student. Like, tell me when it's when I, when it's not good enough. Like, let me see what you're doing. Talk mm. me through this, and and just let me learn because yeah, there's still space in here for some more information. Man. I love that, man. Such a good takeaway. And round of applause one more time. <laughs> and round of applause for Nick as well. I just say thank you for the invite, brother. It's always a pleasure to come and talk with you, man. Always. <laughs>